Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer to Sound On Sight, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, who has not been busy in the slightest in the past week, Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. So, Kate, there I was in the middle of a Vincenzo Natale-directed sex sequence, and all of a sudden the person that I'm with turns into the charcoal Hannibal Seder. What is up with that? I think you just, you know, you got some some mythological fantasies to work out there. That's probably true, but that's material for another podcast. This week we're (laughs) going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 10. We're in the double digits now. We only got three left. Nakachoko, directed by Vincenzo Natale, written by Steve Lightfoot and Kai Yu Wu. And joining us this week is David Bags of Battleship Pretension and Hey Watch This. Hello, David, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Uh, just before we get started, I want to thank listeners who have tuned in and also the ones who have uh, left feedback for us. We got another iTunes rating in the past 10 days. I think I forgot to mention this last week. Uh, another five-star. The user said that the podcast adds so much to viewing the show that I always want to watch the episode again to pick up on more meaning that wasn't apparent initially. Sean asks detailed questions, pointing out the layers that the show's production team adds, while Kate always has a fresh perspective and offers meaning for the music used in the episode. So thank you. You can leave uh, comments uh, and reviews at iTunes, either on the Sound On Sight TV cast or on the Televerse feed. And speaking of Televerse there, for those oh, who yeah. don't know, Sean is my <laughs> new co-host over at the Televerse. It's very exciting. It is very exciting. It's it's fun times podcasting all the time. <laughs> so listeners can tune into that. Uh, that goes up on Tuesday evenings usually. Um, I want to begin by asking uh, David a question from our listeners, actually, um, just because we got to give them the credit. And one of our, our listeners, Mario, asked, is Will fusing into Hannibal in order to take him down, or is he really just enjoying the thrill, which I think is probably a good entry discussion for Nakachoko. I don't think it's necessarily either. I definitely don't think it's the first, but I also don't think he's enjoying it. Uh, or, or maybe we could get a discussion of what that even would mean. Uh, I mean, I think Will is changing, and so uh, I think the the question of whether or not he's enjoying the changing is almost not uh, relevant. He's he's changing, or to use the show's phrase and Thomas Harris's phrase, he's becoming, which is a big uh, theme this season. Uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but I think it's neither. No, and that does answer the question, I think, and it's worth lingering on this just to consider what that becoming or what that transformation is, because I feel like we get a lot of interesting scenes that have information that should be able to get us into Will's head, but I'm not really sure if it does so necessarily. And I guess that leads me to a question that I wanted to ask Kate. During this episode, when Will is talking to the the Randall figure in his little vision, Randall asks, can you see you? And Will says, clearer and clearer. And, And for me, I'm not sure if I'm getting a clearer picture. And I wanted to bring up point of view in Hannibal. Uh, In the most recent season of Homeland, a lot of people took issue with a twist that showed how that series was withholding information from its viewers to create a certain effect. Do you think Hannibal is doing something similar right now, and does that bother you? I I don't think that they are intentionally doing that, but I do because I actually have a completely different take on that uh, question that you asked David earlier than, than David does, and I do think that uh, Will is actively trying to catch 
Hannibal, and this is part of his process of trying to get close to and then, you know, find a way to, to catch Hannibal. Uh, but the show is not reminding us of that. And so therefore, you know, I, I'm always aware of that and thinking about that. And, and I, I you know we'll talk about the last scene in this episode. And I think there's a hint there to sort of remind viewers about that. But because it's been so long since we got any sense of Will being on his crusade to take down Hannibal, that has really gotten away from a lot of viewers, or at least based on the reactions I'm seeing on, on Twitter and, and Facebook and just around the internet, I guess. So so I think that they're not subvert, they're not intentionally uh, obfuscating the question the way that Homeland was, but uh, I don't know if they, when they were conceiving this and putting this together, I don't know if they were, uh, if they predicted that the audience would disconnect from that portion of the story as fully as it feels like maybe they have. Yeah, just touching on what you said about some of the reactions that you've uh, read or heard so far, I, I have had a similar experience where this seems like an episode that, that some viewers have had some problems with, whether that's believability, whether it's trying to connect to Will when there's so much going on that it becomes too difficult. Um, do you relate to that, David? Are, are you having a problem with this episode because of these reasons or at all? Um, I don't know if I'm having a problem with this episode. I remember thinking after I finished watching it last night that kind of uh, maybe feeling kind of bummed that this is the episode I was coming on the podcast to talk about because it uh, it feels so, I think, intentionally like incomplete where it ends, you know, or as, as far as where Will ends. Like, I wish that. A part of me wishes I were. It would be easier to be on a podcast talking about an episode where I felt more sure of what was going on with Will. But I mean, that's that's the point. That's Brian Fuller's design. Um, <laughs> it, but uh, can I go back actually to something that Kate was saying? Because I don't think that we necessarily disagree. I don't think that Will has given up his quest to to catch or or punish Hannibal. But I also don't think that. The fact that he still wants to punish Hannibal means that he's not also becoming a monster. Um, well, that yeah, then we agree. <laughs> uh, uh, but I mean, I, I guess I feel like there's a tendency among certain fans to keep one, and you know, to to you know, the person who asked the question, like, is this part of a long game? Like, I think certain viewers, and I think this is a natural tendency. I part of me has it too. Wants to wants Will to still be an innocent, or want you know, wants him to still be a guy that we can can root for and i don't know that um that's the story that brian fuller is 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 telling and i think that's gonna be that's what makes it such an interesting show but i haven't you know to me the most important thing that has happened for me for my read of hannibal so far this season was hannibal or was will sending um jonathan tucker's character the orderly to to kill hannibal because I know, obviously, you guys already did a podcast in this episode, so I'm not going to go too far into it. But Will did that knowing that at least one person was going to die. And when Jonathan Tucker, I forget the character's name, has Hannibal strung up, Hannibal says that he, he understands why people fight for life because he understands that life is precious. And as much as we, the series is positioning us to be on Will's side, what he does, it's it's easy to write off that he's he doesn't care if Jonathan Tucker's character dies because Jonathan Tucker's character is a murderer, but at least Hannibal understands that despite that, life is precious. And Will seems to, in his, this is how I'm bringing it back to the current episode, or the current discussion, in his pursuit, Will in his pursuit of Hannibal in particular is losing his 
perspective on life as a whole. And maybe Brian Fuller is asking us to consider uh, if that makes Will or Hannibal the worst person. And I would tie that in with Jack as well, because that's something that we've seen the show explore with his character before. How, how, who is he willing to send into danger? So he, you know, doesn't, and we see that his guilt over Miriam Lass and then Beverly. And then, and so this is a continuing thread with Jack. He's having to explore and, and, you know, examine the way that he treats people as objects to achieve various goals, to catch the people he's trying to catch, etc. And so when we see Will shifting in this active way to, to disregarding life in, in a way that is so contrary to where we, he was at the start of the series and what his journey was over the first season, I, I think looking at the, each of these characters, these three central male figures, characters, relationships with uh, sacrifice and, and, uh, and, and their relationship with the, like you say, the preciousness uh, of life, the importance of life, uh, that that is just something that keeps shifting over the course of the season. And I do think it's a very interesting topic. And Will hasn't even had any of the angst about it that Jack has had. Well, Jack didn't have angst about it until Miriam. Uh, is the, would you say? I mean, I don't think that's entirely true. I think he had some misgivings uh, in uh, about Will. In the in flashback. Oh no! I mean, before he lost Miriam the first time, when we've seen oh, flashbacks. Yes, yes, I see what you mean. Yes, Sean, what do yeah, you think? It's so easy for Dave and I to just to start monopolizing conversation. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. I, I want to stick with this idea of of Will's transformation, and, and I have some things to say about how we relate to him. But I, you already mentioned Kate that that last scene, and I think this is a good time to bring it up now. Um, yeah, for fear of sounding like dumb, I, I don't want to like it to me it was very obvious that there's no question about freddie lounge right now right i mean she's obviously she's alive she's alive she's obviously alive yes okay explain <laughs> we haven't seen the body and and uh and i mean come on we, we we haven't seen the body this is a show where even when we did see the body <laughs> it didn't mean that the person wasn't uh still alive or when we thought we saw the body more specifically with uh, Eddie Izzard's character. But no, she's no, that we, he has a fridge full of 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 body parts. And so that fillet that he delivers, it seems obvious to me is is from uh from Randall's Randall. Here. Yeah. And that's not I don't know. from I, her. I don't agree fully with either one of you because remember it wasn't that long ago that an episode ended with us not seeing Beverly die and then and then we saw her she body. She was dead. So the next week's episode could very well start off with a shot of Freddie Lowndes' uh, dismembered corpse. I, I no, I don't think so because and here's here's the difference with Beverly. It was okay. She's gonna die because she's with Hannibal, and we know Hannibal. Will is still a question mark, and Will killing Freddie would be a completely. That that would be a bridge that the show couldn't come back from anywhere near as easily as him killing somebody who showed up, broke into his house, and was going to kill him, and th- and then being presented with a dead body. Well, see again, you're you're supposing you're supposing the show would want to come back from that. Yes, it, it. I still think it does because there's too many episodes left. There's too much story left. They want to do four seasons. I don't think they're gonna be willing to to straight up make Will 
unredeemable, and I think killing Freddy would make him unredeemable. I, I mostly agree with you, and I'm kind of just being devil's <laughs> advocate, but I don't. I'm not as confident as you are, especially on a show that has, in season two, shown a uh, real eagerness to burn through characters, <laughs> including characters who are in Red Dragon. That you know, like Beverly Katz and and, and Chilton. Um, I I feel like given the precedent. I still can't be 100% sure that Freddie Lowndes is still alive. And on my part, I want to agree, <laughs> but I feel like I can't, given the evidence in this. And what the thing evidence? Is, like, what evidence do we have? Okay, I'll, I'll go into that. And, and the thing is, like, this show, and not just this show, but TV obviously trains us to view things in a certain way, and it, it should point to the fact that she's alive. But what what you mentioned about the difference between this and the Hannibal Beverly scene where like there's no coming back from that. Like there's no scenario in which Hannibal lets her go because she's seen what he is and, and what he does. Um, I would recognize and agree with that difference or not for the fact that will attacks her. It's not just like, hold on a second, put down the gun and listen to what I'm explaining. By the time he disarms her, he's still, attacking her and drags her out. There's like no more sense of trying to get a conversation going. And then there's just little things in the scene with, uh, with Will and Hannibal at the end. And obviously I think some of these absolutely could be misdirection, but there are so many of them, not just the fact that, you know, Will's talking about this being long pig, which is human flesh and that it was, you know, from somebody, um, slim who fits Freddie's description. There was the whole kind of, fun and clever uh, dialogue exchange where Hannibal tells Will to to slice the ginger, which absolutely applies to that as well. <laughs> and it was a really nice touch. That. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. But um, I guess just, yeah, there's, there's not enough, there's more evidence, I guess, for me, hard evidence, even if it is misdirection, that would suggest that he has killed her, which was really interesting for those reasons that you said, because... I don't know if Hannibal could come back from that or if it's interested in doing that, which is why I wanted to bring it up. And I'm glad that there's an opinion because that just shows how well-crafted it is so that those options are still available. But, yeah, I guess to me, I, like I said, I'd like to believe it, but I can't. But, but what do you uh, respond to with well, that? Kate, can I ask Kate? Yeah. If Freddie Lanz is alive, if, if Freddie Lanz is alive, what does that look like in the next episode? How does that play out? I don't know that we see her in the next episode. I think uh, she's very. But how, how does she? How, it, 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 does Will have her tied up somewhere? Yeah, he has so her tied up somewhere. Show, or... how, how does the show resolve that? Well, I think the show. I think. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways that they can play it, but this is a show where we thought we we knew air quotes Miriam Lass had to be dead because it was the only thing that made sense, and there was way more evidence to support that supposition here all we have is what uh what we see which is him trying to just talk to her and her responding intelligently by trying to shoot him and run away but the the resorting to violence in order to subdue her so that he can fill her in on what's going on i think it's notable that she believes him and also her own instincts about will which is interesting this week and ties in with our earlier conversation but no i mean she's just tied up somewhere or voluntarily there now you know if she believes will that you know if you go home hannibal is going to kill you so because we see when we see him in in the magic plastic suit so I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch for will to 
understand that that's what's next and to be able to convince Freddie of that. So, I mean, there are so many different things that it could be. And especially because we know he had human, he had long pig in his fridge that, that he could easily be using. Uh, I, that's interesting because I would not have, I would not have predicted uh, anything other than, you know, what seems like so obvious to me. And so that's, that's a fun bit of, of the participation in, in this show. And I love that we have such differing reactions to the same set of information. Again, I'm going to, you know, qualify this for people who might be listening after the next episode is aired so I don't sound like a total yeah, <laughs> idiot. We have no uh, idea. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, so I am, you know, somewhat playing devil's advocate because I think it is very, very possible that Freddy's alive. But the final, the very final shot of the episode, the, the composite image, you know, of, of Will and Hannibal, doesn't that kind of suggest that Will has crossed a, crossed a boundary? Yeah, he's voluntarily eating people. Yeah, I think that's, that's a boundary. That's, that's the other thing that I would point to. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be him eating Freddy. It's just him eating somebody that um, the, the music cue in that. And I'm sure you'll talk about that that piece later, Kate. But um, that directly ties Will to some of the scenes that we've seen in past episodes of Hannibal in season one, especially in which he is feasting to a certain kind of music. And it was a really kind of revelatory scene i think for will um but but like i said you know that that doesn't necessarily have to be him eating a specific person just him eating well and i don't want to diminish the your your response either sean that obviously freddie is dead so for me obviously freddie's alive for for you right now uh your initial take obviously freddie's dead uh and i love that we can have that 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 the show can present enough information that will you know, I trust these writers, too, that works for either interpretation, whichever way they want to go with it. Obviously, Brian Fuller's a sick bastard. <laughs> this was a disturbing episode. This was the most disturbing episode for me. Uh, and it, for me, it goes back to the music, which we'll talk about later on the podcast, but also the, the tableau. That was horrifying to me because, I mean, it's not as, as horrifying as, as the eye or that memorable cold open in episode uh two or three this year but but because we know that will at the very least assisted with it whether or not he did it completely by himself or with hannibal we don't know but that was incredibly disturbing to me oh yeah and add the fact that mason's pigs are just demolishing stand-in humans that's wearing one of margot's really nice suits which is unfortunate but uh yeah, there was a lot of disturbing things in this episode. Um, we can move on to that in just a second. I wanted to ask one more question about Will. And uh, David, you brought it up earlier about him in terms of him being a character that we can root for. Uh, he says to to Jack when they're at the crime scene, uh, don't, mistake, don't mistake understanding for empathy. And I'm wondering if you could explain uh, what you take to be the differences between understanding, sympathy, and empathy, and then use one of those terms to describe your relationship as a viewer with Will right now. Oh my gosh. Um, really detailed question. I'm sorry, but yeah, uh, <laughs> and that's really difficult. I mean, I, um, I mean, I think it's easy to sympathize without understanding because I, um, I swear guys, I've never killed and eaten anyone. So I don't <laughs> understand anything that, that, uh, Will has been going through. Likely um, story. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I believe you. <laughs> but I I sympathize with him. As far as empathy, I mean, I think there's... 
I think there's what we mean out here in the real world when we say empathy, and there's what is meant by it on this show and in the works of Thomas Harris, uh, which are, you know, just varying degrees of the same thing. But I guess, um, I, I guess sympathy, understanding, I think it means understanding, literally being able to put the pieces together. Uh, sympathy means feeling, what's the word I'm looking for? Feeling compassion for the person. Empathy, though, I guess is t- tougher to, for me to describe. Um, as far as how I feel about Will, it's mostly sympathy. Yeah, I'll stick with that. Good. Well, I think it would be useful for the other two of us to weigh in on that. And I think that at this point, and based on my interpretation of this episode, uh, it's kind of devolved into simple understanding. I don't think, given what we've seen, and I still have to consider the fact that this is a very long game that Will's playing, but he has crossed certain lines, I think, and I don't know if I can sympathize with him anymore. Yeah, it's it's tricky. It's certainly tricky, and that's one of the elements that I think has, has turned people off of this episode specifically, but even just the second season. I, I know you know, in the the day since this aired, there's been, at least in, in my Twitter feed, and Sean, I think, uh, problem guessing in yours, response from listeners saying that they're ready to, to quit the show because uh, they don't understand Will. They can't relate with him or uh or empathize with him to 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 use the word of the day and um and this season has gotten increasingly murky we've had less and less to hold on to as will has fewer people that he can speak with or open up to uh really at this point he has no one that he can be honest with we are are having to guess at his state of mind and guess at where he's coming from and that uh if you, at a certain point, if you don't give your viewers anything to hold on to, you can't be surprised if they disengage. And um, this is this episode was a lot to take, and where Will is at right now is a lot to take. So it's I you know I don't know exactly where I, where I, where I'm at with it. I want I want to sympathize with um, with Will. Obviously, like David said, I can't empathize. I can't experience what he's experiencing because I'm very glad I can't. Um, but but I, I, that even just that level of, of sympathy, if I had a sense of who, you know, that there was still a will in there somewhere, the will that we first met, that there was still some little piece of him and that he's not going to go back to being who he was, but there's still something in there that, that, that uh, there's still some semblance of his self that he is able to hold on to, that would really help. But we haven't gotten that. We haven't gotten his mind palace. We haven't gotten any sort of... Uh, picture of his struggle to hold on to himself, and so I think that makes it a lot more challenging uh, of a show and a character. Uh, I was just gonna, uh, just wondering if this were like TV of twenty plus years ago um, when this happened more often. If this episode had was exactly the same, but then after that last shot, the words "to be continued" came on the screen. Do you think the viewership might be a little more comfortable uh, with where it ended? It feels, but it feels to me very, um, isn't that implied in, in what we see? It doesn't feel like it's the end of the story. Maybe, uh, but, but, but uh, the, the, that sort of, that sort of assurance that like, you know, you're saying people are losing touch with Will, that, that brief assurance that, you know, we're not done with the story. Don't, you know, withhold yeah. your judgment for now might be just enough to keep people from saying, I'm not comfortable with where Will is going. 
That's actually a really interesting question because I can certainly imagine a version of this series in which this was the series finale and that final image is it. And that's like the punctuation and what we're supposed to take away from that relationship, which would be a terrifying version of that show. But if this were the series finale, though, we would have seen him kill Freddie Lance. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's very true. Um, Kate, you mentioned uh, having people to talk to, having allies and stuff like that. Uh, And I wanted to ask. David, given that that Will has been desperately seeking allies against Hannibal all season, why is he so resistant to Freddie Lowndes in this episode when she says that she believes he was right about Hannibal? Well, no, I mean, I um, I don't know that I agree that he has been since Beverly died that he's still looking for allies. Do you? Can you back that up? Maybe am I m- missing something? Um, have, has he been actively seeking since Beverly? Well, I guess things changed when he got released, definitely. But there's still that seething frustration that comes with any scene in which he has to to word his way around saying that because he's worried people aren't going to, that they're worried he's going to fall back into the same patterns. He doesn't want Jack to think that he's still incredibly obsessed with this idea. And I, I think that, yeah, it, it's not directly in the text, but I would say that it's underneath it, that he's still hoping that somebody is going to come around. But, but no, I don't have any hard evidence for that. That's yeah, just but kind he, of... he, he's also, as much as he, we've, we talked about him losing some idea of life's preciousness, uh, at least where it comes to killers, uh, I mean, I do think he's uh, scarred by the fact that he got Beverly killed. And so um, what, you're saying, what you're seeing is frustration. I feel like it's a certain uh, uh, moral hesitation or, or reticence um, to open up too much because he knows that bringing anyone out into his circle means that they are a potential victim. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that's why he doesn't open up to Bever- open up to Freddie is because of Beverly very specifically. And I- I'm glad to see that shift. As frustrating as it can be as a viewer to not if we want Will to, you know, have a more accessible journey to getting Hannibal, which includes getting the gang together and all of that. Uh, but I'm glad that Beverly's Beverly died for a reason. And that was to shift Will's uh, journey this season so that he had to go alone. Perfect. All right. I want to move on now. Well, can, just, can I ask uh, a question about Beverly while, while we're at this break? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Or it did relates to Beverly's death. I don't know. Uh, this is, uh, I try not to get too like, fanboyish about stuff and try to just stick to you know the the text as it were of the episodes that i'm watching but um you know i don't know if, have you guys read red dragon no um, yeah yeah you have uh yes yeah I'm, so, I, so it was a while and, ago. and brian fuller saying that oh we'll eventually get to the tooth fair and we'll get to the events of red dragon did that make that make beverly's death or chilton's death a bigger deal to you we haven't seen the body Chilton could not be dead. <laughs> What's that? Chilton could theoretically not be dead. Brian Fuller mentioned in his walkthrough with uh, Todd Vanderwerf at the AV Club that hey, Serpico survived a shot to the head. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't. I didn't read the. I haven't read any of the walkthroughs yet. I think I'm kind of saving it for the end of the season. Uh, to answer that question, yeah, it's it colors it differently. I'm not sure how much weight I put onto that, just because Fuller has made some very interesting and effective decisions in terms of adapting this and he's straight a bit here and there so i don't know 
are, are we considering the the next time on Hannibal things spoilers? Are we allowed to talk Some about that? Some people do. Consider yeah, I don't those watch spoilers. Them, so, I would... so yeah. Okay. All right. So I won't mention an image that happens in that. But um, yeah, there's there's some interesting things going on with regards to that, and yeah. I'm not sure how much I I think about that with regards to the characters that we have from the novels. I think I, I think about the book. I, I haven't read the later books. I've only read Red Dragon, and I think about the book fairly often this season because he's still borrowing turns of phrase some of my favorite ones i think in the first episode uh hannibal says that will uh finds his condition like you know grotesque but useful like an antler made of like a chair made of antlers and then in the previous episode hannibal says to randall it's my favorite line from the book red dragon uh that uh you bore screams as the sculptor bears dust from the beaten stone and that's directly directly from Red Dragon. And so I feel like Brian, Brian Fuller can't stop reminding me of Red Dragon, so that's why I can't stop being surprised or comparing where the characters are on the show to where they are when Red Dragon starts. Yeah, there are just so many reminders of Red Dragon and also other aspects of the, the Hannibal, would you call it a quad quadrilogy whatever i mean if you're counting hannibal rising i'm not sure but even for hannibal rising in this episode we get to mention that um that hannibal had a sister when he's talking to to mason verger um but that might be a good segue to talk about mason verger and michael pitt who is oh my god okay so i can understand why people have issues with this episode and I, i find it just kind of surface level interesting because i don't even know if i watch hannibal in terms of thinking that this was a good episode or a bad episode, but at the very least, I hope that people were impressed or that really that they really enjoyed the two scenes that we did get with Mason because I thought Michael Pitt knocked it out of the park. But uh, Kate, what did you take away from from these scenes, and, and how do you think Pitt fits into this this role and this series? One of my notes that I have down here is Michael Pitt, one hell of an entrance, and man, is that an awesome entrance! <laughs> Uh, the just with the hair and the this that coat was ridiculous, and then the pig. I mean, the whole it just iconography. You know, like if you want to create a memorable image, they certainly did that. The director did that uh, this week with, with the introduction, just the first glimpse of of Mason. But yeah, the, it's a it's a wonderful performance. Very, uh, you know, I not being familiar with the source material and uh, only having seen somewhat a very very little bit of michael pitt's work uh i i knew that he was a that everybody was very excited by the casting and i basically trust all y'all that michael pitt is an awesome actor because i haven't had a chance to catch up with his season of seasons of boardwalk empire um so, so i i was expecting goodness uh and i was very glad to to see it live up to all the hype and i'm guessing david i'm curious your thoughts on this but everybody's expectations uh, i thought i thought it was fantastic i really like the chemistry with both uh with pitt and also uh mass mickelson and uh, Catherine isabel i thought you know both of those scenes were really well uh, I every time I see pigs like that, I just got I have to go mentally to to, to woo on Deadwood, um, which is a much happier, hap- <laughs> more happy-go-lucky, yeah, uh, human-eating pig scenario. But um, but no, it was you know between just you know the 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 way that this character was introduced uh, off-screen in in with his assault on his sister uh, it was very stylized and horribly memorable. 
and then to and, and then all the conversation and the lead up to him it, it's reminiscent of something like in the third man when you have the lead up to Harry Lyme and and similarly uh similarly this this r- reveal of the character and these first scenes we get with the character live up to episodes worth of build up and that is no small feat David did these two scenes work for you uh very much so and i um i really like okay Television in general, because it has sprawling stories and lots of different characters, is always, uh, I think, even more so, more so than film, inviting us to draw parallels between different stories or di- even different scenes. And so whenever, it's, or at least that's the way I tend to watch TV, is I'm always looking for parallels and echoes. So I always take notice when someone only has two scenes, because I uh, am very quick to compare the two scenes and to compare it to other things. Uh, and so I go back to the the muralist. I can't remember the character's name from the beginning of the season, something gray, the villain mm-hmm. who's the muralist. Um, and now, you know, he's this terrifying monster. And then the moment he's face to face with Hannibal, he's almost kind of pathetic. And so I don't know if you guys agree with me, but the two scenes with Mason, that first scene, yeah, what an entrance, like it was very intimidating and terrifying. And then in the second scene, when he's with Hannibal, it's almost without any change in his performance. He seemed more like a, little boy than than a real threat just compared just standing next to Hannibal doing almost who was doing almost nothing I don't know if you guys had the same read of those two scenes but I found it uh really uh fascinating what I picked up from the scene with Hannibal in relation to that was the surprise on Mason's part when Hannibal mentions the things that Margot has done without saying them specifically and uh and Pitt pauses for a little bit before laughing it off rather nervously. So yeah, I think that distinction was there, but where I felt like the the Gray and Hannibal shot or sequence, there was a much larger gap. I, I wouldn't say necessarily that Mason and Hannibal in this scene are equals, but I would say it's much closer to that than it was with the muralist. Well, in that scene, you see, you watch Mason shift his percep- per- perception of of Hannibal because he tries to, you know, be threatening, and he, you know, you're he's finding out just how much his sister has told Hannibal, and uh, as soon as uh, Hannibal is able to basically say, "Yeah, I know what you did, and I'm not going to tell anyone because I can't," and but also I wouldn't, and I know what you did, and I'm not scared of you, that immediately shifts. His uh, their their interactions, and then by the end of the scene, he tries the same thing again. He's trying to be intimidating with, oh, I see these pigs here. I'll go slaughter one for you. Oh, look at me! And and I was like, oh, great, that would be wonderful. Thank you. I mean, just it just yeah, it is a out of his league kind of situation. I agree. It's not a, the disparity is not as extreme as it was with the muralist, but but no, watching watching Mason sort of have to pivot and try to get his get his a read on Hannibal is really entertaining because it's like no no Mason you're a horrible horrible monster but this is Hannibal Lecter and uh it's a very different uh different it's a whole different scale absolutely there's still plenty of Hannibal to talk about in relation to this episode so we'll probably have to move on I did want to say though that I don't know if either of you watched Trophy Wife but this is one of those weird TV coincidences that happen within a week of each other. The, the most recent episode of Trophy Wife featured a recording of people screaming. And so that was great that, that this one had that as well as Mason was feeding the pigs. And 
obviously done in, in much different styles. So wait, is um, is Trophy Wife also on NBC? ABC. No, ABC. Oh, yeah, that would have been even better actually. Because I was like, you remember when NBC used to do like in the nineties, they do like the the, the power out night, <laughs> yeah. where like all four episodes, all four shows on Thursday night would like the power goes out in New York, and that's the story for all the episodes. What if like the decree came down from NBC? I'd really this, like it if, if, this if week's one week. Are towards the yeah, yeah. If every show just had screaming people on a recording, <laughs> that'd be great. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about uh, the sex scene. I thought that that Vincenzo Natale, the director, did oh, a really finally fine job with this. All right, so David, you're ready to go. So go for it. Break it down. <laughs> no, I was I was mostly making a joke because I <laughs> I don't actually know what to say about it except that it was incredible. Yeah, visually stunning. The interesting parallels were drawn. I thought. Um, what what stood out to you the most in it? I think what stood out to me the most is that a couple of things. One, Margot is supposed to be a lesbian, so that was a bit weird. Um, am I right? Like, no. They, not- well, and they referenced that, and it, that's something that will be touched on in the next episode. Uh, but no, they, I like that they specifically that Will quotes her back to herself about, about her- having. Yeah. proclivities and parts. I, I I like that they are very aware of that in this episode, if this is what they're going to do. Okay. Uh, I'd say the uh, thing that stood out to me was, uh, and this is, uh, you know, I'm not, this isn't going to be some great insight, but I, I liked that it uh, isn't clear when, when Will is thinking about Alana or when Alana is thinking about Will uh, in their two different scenes. Would you agree with that? I would, yeah, because there's that shot that transitions from her kissing one to the other, and she is the center of that, right? So that seems yeah, to be yeah. more from her perspective. But there are other things that are from from Will's perspective, and so, uh, I mean, I guess it suggests a sort of psychic connection between them, but it's probably about a lot more. I feel like it would be foolhardy for me to look at that se- sequence and say, here's what it means. Well, here's one thing it means. Holy crap, look what they can do on TV now. I'm just not, I'm not talking, you know, the uh, you know, FCC and standards and all that. I'm talking on a TV budget. Look what kind of ridiculously gorgeous, incredibly disturbing, but gorgeous uh, scenes that they can produce. Yeah. Damn! No, yeah. absolutely. It was fantastic. And it helps that there's a lot of talent both on screen and off screen. So this, I think this is easily one of the best directed scenes that we've seen this season. And that's saying a lot given that this is Hannibal. But was there anything else that, that you thought was particularly effective, Kate? Oh, man, having the, the Will Wendigo or whatever in there. So so creepy. Apparently that was the director's idea. That wasn't originally. It was going to be a, just a, a four-way at first, and they're like, hey, why don't we throw the stag, man stag thingy in there, and then it just got even creepier. Um, but I, I, of course, being myself, I, I was like, ooh, theremin. Start, so I started, like, noting things about the theremin, and then I just had to stop, because there was so much going on in that scene, and uh, I, I think it was a really effective and powerful and illustrative scene for where these characters are at and the exception to that is Alana and therein lies my one or two biggest problems with the episode they've really really bungled Alana uh, this this season I mean a big fan of Carolyn Davernas and I've really liked a lot of what they've given her to do and how she's portrayed it but if we don't know where Will is at we really have not you know the, the show has not spent any time trying to get us inside of Alana's mind and where she's at and hopefully that will change in the coming in the coming weeks in the last few weeks of the season but this just 
I wish the show cared even a little bit about where Alana was at compared to how much they care about even Jack or or they did seem to care about Beverly. I my and maybe this is just me being hopeful, but my my hope I guess is that that's this is by design. Uh sorry if I come I keep <laughs> dropping the name of the show here. Uh and that when at some point Alana you know she has she has some sort of like blinders on right now or she's She's at some point the scales will fall from her eyes and it will be glorious and that's what I'm hoping for that they're they're holding off on this because the impact when uh, she does sort of wake up to <laughs> uh, to what's going on will will be uh, will be huge so that's my hope uh, if that doesn't happen then yeah I'm with you it's been kind of a disappointment. Well, but imagine how much more powerful this scene would have been, the exact same scene, if we had some semblance of where she was coming from. No, that's that's a perfect point, yeah. And we've talked on the podcast before about kind of how they're not really giving Alana the best material. But uh... well, See, I don't know that I uh, – maybe this is semantics, but as far as you say you, we don't know where she's coming from, I don't know that I agree with that. I agree that it's not very fleshed out, but I feel like the basic point of where she's coming from – has been laid out, you know, she, like, you know, I, I, I said earlier, you know, way back an hour ago when we started the podcast, uh, that my, you know, the most important development this season for me was Will sending Jonathan Tucker's character off to do his bidding. And, uh, Alana has not gotten past that. And I think that's, so as far as where she's coming from, I think that's what it is. And I think now, if you want to say that disappointingly basic or unexplored, that's a complaint I would agree with, but I don't think that we're in the dark as to where she's coming from. Well, everybody else gets to have complex emotions about it. Yeah. Jack gets to have complex emotions. Will certainly does. Hannibal does. Everybody else gets to feel many things at once. And even if, if the whole point is that she's channeling her energy into only feeling one thing, because that's the easiest way to, to handle the situation. That's great. I would like to see that. I think we're we're basically in agreement, but I, yeah. like I said, it was a semantic dis- distinction. But yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I am I am cutting the Alana discussion off because Kate has mentioned the theremin, and it is time for the critically acclaimed award-winning segment, <laughs> Kate's classical corner. Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in Nakachoko? Well, I I, uh, I I had started to take a bunch of notes about the theremin and and some of the percussion this week. And then in two scene, two pieces of music popped up, uh, classical pieces in the episode, and uh, we talked a little bit about the theremin back with uh, Hannibal's the revelation that Hannibal composes for the theremin and the uh, harpsichord. So if you want a little bit of theremin discussion, go back to that podcast from earlier in the season because I've got to spend this short amount of time we have on those two classical pieces. They are Chopin's uh, Raindrop Prelude and Mahler's uh, Adagietto from Symphony Number no. 5. Uh, now, Chopin's Raindrop Prelude is a gorgeous piece, one of his longest preludes. It was composed in 1838 while Chopin was staying in uh, a monastery in Majorca with Georges Sand, his, uh, his, the woman with whom he had a tempestuous relationship um, but one of the love of his life, as far as um, most these, these things are, as far as these things go, um, he, Chopin composed at least part of the piece uh, during a storm. Uh, so, so the the rain was falling on and hitting the roof, and that was you know he uh, so that that influenced his c- composition of the piece. This is by the way, this is the piece that's used in 
to underscore the dinner scene with with Alana and Will and with Hannibal. And uh, anyway, so, so he, but Chopin claimed that he dreamed while he was composing, and he had become incredibly upset because he'd become convinced that Sand was dead in his in his dream. And Sand later wrote. Um, he saw himself drowned in a lake. Heavy drops of icy water fell in a regular rhythm on his breast, and when I made him listen to the sound of the drops of water indeed falling in rhythm on the roof, he denied having heard it. He was even angry that I should interpret this in terms of imitative sounds. He protested with all his might, and he was right to, against the childishness of such oral imitations. His genius was filled with the mysterious sounds of nature, but transformed into sublime equivalence in musical thought, and not through slavish imitation of actual external sounds." So, so when we have this use of this piece, uh, this is this is a piece very much tied to his relationship with with his love, Chopin's relationship with Sand, and and this sort of strange out of body experience of the composer seeing himself as dead and cold and underwater and with so much water imagery throughout the season. Uh, this but less so much in this episode, but throughout the season and throughout the series, there's been so much water imagery. The choice of that particular prelude with with that particular backstory if you're interested in looking into it i thought was really interesting who chopin would be in this situation if you want to say that that's will who is currently underwater trying you know being being attacked by hannibal trying to figure himself out or if he it's will being concerned for for alana there's so many different ways you can read that if you want to and of course i like overanalyzing so i do um, but uh, the other piece is Mahler's Adagietto from Symphony Number no. Five. This is one of the most acclaimed movements or works by Mahler. For those who don't know Gustav Mahler's work, you're missing out. You should go check it out. An amazing, amazing composer wrote massive works, massive symphonies. And currently, I'm playing Mahler Five. So uh, when we finish recording, I'm going to go to a gig and perform this piece. And it's going to be incredibly disturbing because the Mahler's Adagietto, which he was was composed um, during the summer months of 1901 and 02, it's a love song from Mahler to his wife or his future wife, depending on what you know. Whether you're in 1901 or 1902, it, he he put a he put a poem to it, which is translates to "How much I love you, you my son. I cannot tell you that with words. I can only lament to you my longing and love." And so to hear this beautiful, just lush, gorgeous, absolutely amazing bit of composition. It's only strings. There's no woodwinds. There's, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's just this very lush, incredibly challenging to pull off, uh, pianissimo for most of the work, uh, string sound to hear this ultimate ode to love set to Hannibal and Will theoretically eating Freddie Lowndes was abhorrent to me <laughs> it was it, like it was the most disturbing thing about this entire episode for me I mean I, obviously I'm more in the work right now because I'm playing it but oh my oh my god it, it would be like uh, a it would be like if they had set this scene to Romeo and Juliet da, 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 the one that everybody knows now a lot of people are going to know the history of this piece, the Adagietto, but it is a more subtle choice than something like Romeo and Juliet. Uh, but yeah, it is an ultimate expression of love. And so to have this beautiful, beautiful work underscoring such a perverted, screwed up relationship as where Will and Hannibal are, this expression of love, theoretically from Will 
from Hannibal, no, Will to Hannibal as he gives him this gift of Freddy. Oh my God. It was, again, I ab- abhorrent. So that, that, I, that's how I knew I had to spend my classical corner this week. Not talking about theremin, not talking about percussion, but talking about these two gorgeous and uh, full of history classical pieces. What are you going to do if you see Moss Mickelson in the audience staring directly at you? <laughs> no, see, I, that's not what concerns me. I'm not worried about Moss Mickelson. I'm worried about uh, the, 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 the demented geniuses over there who are like, you know what would be the ultimately disturbing piece? So Brian Fuller or Brian Reitzel, whoever was deciding this, which classical piece to use for this episode, those are the ones that I'm more worried about being in the audience. One time I tried to contribute to the classical corner and Kate was angry that I should interpret this in slavish imitation. (laughs) I was? Nobody told me. (laughs) No, I'm just drawing from that that letter. Uh, We'll move on to the second segment of the podcast, or recurring segment rather, The Devil in the Details, which is, again, anything small that stands out in some way, be it visual or otherwise. Uh, I'll kick it off by mentioning Michael Pitt's delivery of a certain line. It was... When he's speaking to Margot and he says, you're all I have and I'm all you have. I don't know if the writer italicized the all in that or if that was a decision on Pitt's part. But I thought that that really changed the the interpretation of that line reading, which was interesting. Uh, David, what little things stood out to you in this episode? Oh, I really wish that I'd been prepared for this segment. <laughs> um I'm sorry that we didn't inform you beforehand. I probably should have done that at the beginning of this entire season, but uh, it gets you thinking on your feet. Um, okay, you know what I like? Uh, the, 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 the pig pen, I guess, where all the pigs are. Mason has installed a mirror over the pen angled in such a way that he can look straight out and see what the pigs are devouring. And it's not just a utilitarian mirror that he got at Home Depot. It has this massive, ornate, like, golden frame around it. And I uh, found that really um, uh, almost darkly funny, uh, but kind of telling about his uh, his character. That is absolutely perfect for the devil in the details. So, Kate, was there anything that stood out to you in this one? The, I, I only have a couple. And uh, first of all, we, we're back to Hannibal in his in a brown suit when we have because um, of course I go back to my clothing thing with this. Um, so I, I really enjoyed seeing Hannibal back in a brown suit, either the same suit or very similar uh, to the one that he wore with that Jack and Will dinner, and this is in the uh, Will Alana dinner, uh, and that so that I thought that was that was a nice visual tie there, um, and. Uh, and again, having that ornate tie compared to the one he has later when in the secondary dinner, it's a much simpler, uh, more bold print as opposed to one with as many flourishes. So I enjoyed that little detail. I love the wallpaper in Freddie's apartment. It's, um, I don't know, it's just like sort of rainbowy, drippy, but patterned um, thing. I, I, I don't know. I thought that was really, uh, really neat, uh, a fun little touch. And, um, I I wrote in my notes. Listen to the doggies, Will, <laughs> when uh, he's in the opening scene when um when, when Randall comes in and he's of course seeing seeing the Wendigo or seeing H- Hannibal and the dogs are are so agitated. It's like for me the dogs were the the bit of Will reacting as opposed to where Will's at now. So it's like the dogs would just be like we're like just shoot him, just get this is an intruder. We just need to shut down the situation. Whereas 
Will is now thinking on his feet about how he's going to pummel this guy to death with his hands. Lovely. Um, let me see. The only other thing I have is, um, again, another clothing thing. I loved uh, Margot being in white in her first scene with, with Hannibal. I love this notion right now that she is, of the two, she is the, the one who's um, trying to avoid falling into Hannibal's design for his patients uh, compared to her and Will. And so she, where her, putting her in that white makes her more of an innocent and uh, I, I don't know it was it was a more a very stark visual for me. And then I just that green blouse she has later was gorgeous, lovely. Really made her eyes pop. And uh, she she knew she looked good, obviously, because she went there to to hook up hook up with Will. So, um, but but I really love that that green blouse. So those those are my those are my devil in the details moments. I think the only other thing that I had was. Moss's face at the, the dinner table when Alana and Will are talking to each other. I don't know what it was. It seemed like maybe looking at parents arguing or something, but it had he had a very like childlike quality uh, on his face in that expression, which I found hilarious, absolutely. Um, but we'll probably be wrapping. I think we're at time. Was there anything else either of you quickly wanted to mention with regards to this episode? This is actually the only the second of the season in which uh, Brian Fuller is not credited as one of the writers, the other one being the third episode, Hassan, the the courtroom one, which I think people uh, coincidentally also did not take too kindly to. Did anybody else feel like that uh, dinner sequence, you know, just was anybody else waiting for uh, Hannibal to be like, so shall we move this into the bedroom? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I'm glad that you said that. I I, I disagree because I, like like Sean, I always see a... familial thing um and maybe it's because of the scene from se- season one the the episode with molly shannon that never aired um where um hannibal and alana are clearly like uh i mean i mean clearly like literally turn into uh parental figures for abigail i always am looking for that sort of dynamic on the show the parent child thing and so when john mentioned it uh, that rang very true. So All no, right. I wasn't expecting that they were going to go uh, get it on. <laughs> no, maybe they, next they, time, Kate. Maybe next time. I didn't think they were, but I don't know. I was I was picking up a vibe there. This is still NBC. There are things that they can do and things they can't do, and that is one of the things that they they have to be very arty and just to sort of imply these things. They can't actually have that be a, a plot point. But uh, no, and, and I suppose that this is an HBO, so I shouldn't really be expecting that kind of a uh, familial incesty creepiness <laughs> we can hope though we can hope. <laughs> <laughs> there's still three episodes this season yeah. right yes there are and kate and i will be back next week to discuss episode 11 ko no mono and that's it for this week though uh david once again thank you for coming on to the podcast this week where can the listeners find you online well, first off, this was so great, and I'm like, you know, I'm sad that there's only 13 episodes because I want to keep <laughs> petitioning to come <laughs> back on your show because uh, uh, this is a blast. I love talking Hannibal. Um, anyway, you can find uh, my film discussion podcast, Battleship Pretension, at battleshippretension.com. That's also where you can find all my movie uh, reviews uh, and, and uh, other people's movie reviews and links to other podcasts, including my TV podcast, which is probably of more interest to um, your listenership uh, called Hey Watch This with Paul and David which I do with the king of TV Paul Goble and which I only do with Paul because Kate turned him down um, <laughs> this week we'll be talking about the Big Bang Theory because Bob Newhart is going back and we'll be talking about the other show 
that I am nuts about that's currently in season after Hannibal, uh, the Americas. Good man. Yeah, that's that's understandable. <laughs> after you mentioned at the the top of the hour that you almost wish you had not come this week, I, I was hoping that by the end of it that you would have been thoroughly satisfied because I thought that this has been a very good discussion. Yeah, I had a blast. Good. Uh, all right, Kate, where can our listeners find you online, if anywhere? Well, you can find me at Sound On Sight. I, uh, I re- review several shows over there. On the sea on Monday, my review of Louis. The, I'll be re- reviewing Louis every week, so that that'll be going up, um, as well as Grimm and Orphan Black. Right now, I also review Veep over at the AV Club, so you can find me there. And of course, I love talking all this stuff with you guys on Twitter. So I'm at the Televerse on Twitter, and the Televerse, of course, is the weekly TV podcast covering all the other shows aside from the Handle podcast and the Sound of Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, everything else uh, is covered over at the Televerse uh, with. Of course, my wonderful new co-host, Sean, here. So if you like this podcast, uh, it's very different. We, you know, we, we cover about 20 shows a week, so we're not getting into this kind of depth. But it's a, it's a blast, so you guys should check that out as well. And that, that goes up Tuesday nights, Wednesday mornings, depending on you know, wee hours, somewhere in there um, every week at uh, over at, at Sound On Sight. Lots of fun. Very excited to be talking about several different things. Uh, you can find my work at tvovermind.com, which is where I do my weekly reviews with Hannibal. Uh, in addition to The Americans, I think most of my other shows there are finished, um, but also, of course, at Sound on Sight. And as Kate mentioned at the Televerse, my Twitter handle is just at my name, at Sean Coletti. Otherwise, my stuff and all the links to other things will appear on my blog. There is nothing on .com. Uh, but that's it for this week. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. Feel free to leave your comments, ask us some questions, uh, rate us on iTunes. But this has been another episode of This Is Our Design. This world stops turning Ashes where the body's burning No more war pigs of the power And as God has struck the hour The day of judgment God is calling Underneath the war pigs crawling Begging mercies for the sins Satan laughing spreads his wings oh!